So the second longest lived people in the world, according to research done at Deakin University in Melbourne, are older Greek Australians who who are migrants. So they're the first, you know, they, they're off the boat in a sense. So they're older now, but they're living a long time. And so what is it about that? That is Dr. Norman Swan. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This week, I talk with Australia's most trusted doctor about the secret to living younger, longer. If you're anything like me, I'm sure you'd love to still be around to hang out with any potential grandchildren you might have. But the tough question is, are you actually living in a way now that will give you a better chance of being fit and active if and when you actually have grandchildren? Dr. Norman Swan has written two really good books on this subject, So You Think You Know What's Good For You and So You Want to Live Younger, Longer. And in this conversation, he unpacks some of the key concepts we can employ to do just that. I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Norman Swan. Dr. Norman Swan, welcome to the show. Now, you're a father, a physician, journalist, and broadcaster, and you've won tons of awards and the hearts of millions with your daily coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic on Coronacast. I want to thank you uh, for all the work you did alongside Tegan to help keep everyone up to speed on developments and, and keep us all focused on staying safe and well throughout the pandemic. And I think there's really good reason why people refer to you as Australia's most trusted doctor. So I guess my first question would be, what's the secret to making a good tiramisu? <laughs> a bottle. Well, first of all, if you've got any teetotalers coming, my recipe won't work because I use a very large amount of Kahlua. So you've got to be generous with your tiramisu. So, uh, yeah. So the secret is Kahlua as well as really good coffee. And uh, and really and the, the correct savoir savoir biscuits, and um, you know just every you just put coronary heart disease to one side. <laughs> and I I, I I actually made it once at Christmas, and I'd forgotten. I mean, so I'm just so used to putting Kahlua into it. I'd forgotten that there was a lot of alcohol in it, which is actually you got to warn people because you know they might go off and drive the car or something like that. <laughs> And there was this elderly woman coming who um, was a teetotaler and she got a bit tipsy and her children had never seen her tipsy before. She was, And she'd gone from really being quite austere to being very amusing. You know, she always <laughs> drunk a little bit more, but she, she would never trust anything I cooked ever again. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Reading your books, your, your recent books, So You Think What's Good For You and, and So You Want To Live Younger Longer, it was like a double-edged knife because on one side, I was feeling so upbeat when you talked about optimism and things like that. And on the other side, I was like, oh my gosh, there goes the last nail in the coffin for salt because I love salt. I've just mm. got into making focaccia and just covering the thing with salt. And yeah. so I suppose coffee did actually you know, stand out as one of the, the things that I can hang on to. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what... What age, realistically, do you actually want to live to or do you think you will live to in a meaningful way before the wheels start falling off? So you're talking about me personally? Yeah. Well, nobody wants to live to a, a, a ripe old age, decrepit and frail and dependent on others. So the idea here is to 
keep yourself in good shape. So my, my intention is to get well into my 90s and be still going to the gym and you know, really working hard to stay fit and trying to keep my weight down, which is a constant battle. It gets a bit easier, I think, as you get older, they tell me. But um, So I, I want to live... I want to live for as long as possible. I, I don't want to, you know, people say, oh, you know, who wants to live to 100? Well, I'll put up my hand. I want to live to 100 as long as I'm in good shape and not dependent on others. As soon as I become dependent on others, I, you know, I, I'm really not interested. But, you know, I want to see what happens next. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got quite a big family as well, haven't you? You've got three children and, what is it, five grandchildren? Yeah, it's all growing fast. That's right. I love um, the way Peter Atia talks about how to prepare for old age with grandchildren in particular. And, and if you want to be able to grab a grandchild as it runs towards you and then sort of lift it up in the air when you're 90, you've got to step back and reverse engineer what you need to be goblet squatting when you're 50 okay. to be able to lift a grandchild at 90. And it's quite alarming. The weightlifting plays a big part, isn't it? In, in sort of 100%. So you, you, by the way, it's never too late. There's a researcher who's now in Sydney, at Sydney University, who was at Tufts in Boston and called Maria Fiatteroni Singh. And she, with others in Boston, did a weight training program in aged care, residential aged care with frail 90-year-olds and found that if you actually weight trained 90-year-olds, you could actually restore a lot of muscle function. So it is actually never too late. So, so the fact that you... You know, having to go into the gym and lifting weights in your 50s does not condemn you to that. But it becomes harder because your muscles do start to waste away. You get this condition called sarcopenia, which does speed up your path to frailty. So you do have to plan ahead, but it's not too late. But, you know, I've just come from the gym. I try and go as many days of the week as I possibly can, and I mix it up there to maintain my strength as much as possible so that's a long answer to a short question which is i'll take what i get in good shape but who knows what's around the corner so the, the other you know attitude of mind that i've got is this is all you've got why would you put something off to tomorrow which you can do today you know let's not procrastinate and, and let's enjoy stuff yeah absolutely what was it like being a father, because you must be so busy, I'm staggered by how many things you've managed to do and still do. But how did you actually make that balance between bringing three kids up and get all that stuff done? Well, if you were to ask my children's mother, they would say there was no balance. I didn't do nearly as much as she brought up the children, which is, in fact, largely true. She's a wonderful mother. And so I, you know, I, w I was obsessed with work and you know, when you're in broadcasting and journalism, it tends to be all-consuming. So I, I I wasn't as present. It was the old cliche. I wasn't as present as a father as I as I should have been. And their mum did a lot of the work. So it was very hard to get the balance, I have to say. I had various strategies in place, which is um, taking the kids one-on-one -on -one away with me when I could do a lot of travelling. And when I was travelling and I knew I had some time, I would take the kids from quite an early age and we'd have one-on-one -on -one time. And the, the kids remember those times. We had, we had a lot of fun. But I was not the perfect father. It must have been wonderful for them, though, to actually see you do your work as well, firsthand. Well, they would get in the car and I was be, I'd be taking them to school and have Radio National on the radio and they would want it turned off. <laughs> 
and today <laughs> FM or Triple M turned on. So, you know, I'm not sure how much they really focus. I, you know, growing up, I don't think my kids had much awareness of what I was doing. I mean, I took them into work we, we, when they were sick or their mum was sick and, that, you know, and I was on childcare duty. They, they would come into work with me and watch what was going on. Their mum got the flu or something like that. And the, my middle daughter, I don't think we had my youngest daughter at that point, my middle daughter, who was about two, she had to be looked after and I was going to Melbourne. And so... The solution was I would take her to Melbourne with me because my, you know, their mom was so unwell. And so we get on the plane and we sit down in the plane and she turns to me and says, is this your office, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fairly perceptive remark. Actually. Yeah, for, for a large chunk of the time, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, sp- speaking of great mothers, I asked my wife, Sarah, this morning if she had any questions she'd like me to ask you. And, and her first reply as she was sort of herring around the house was, does he know where I put my bag? And I don't think you'd be able to answer that one. But the second question was actually, what do you feel about being vegan, especially in women as they sort of reach middle age and, and start to get older? Look, most research has been done on vegetarianism, particularly through Seventh-day Adventists and other groups who who don't eat meat. There's been less research done on vegans. And, of course, vegans, it depends on how strict you are as a vegan. Some people who are vegans move in and out of stuff. Once a week, they'll have fish. They go out to a nice restaurant. They think, oh, gosh, I'm going to have the fish this week. So if you actually take the the global view of their diet, it's mostly vegan, but occasionally. And then there are some people who just won't deviate from a true vegan path. So there's not a lot of data. The, 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 The point I would make is that it's much easier to be a vegan today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Just look at what's on the shelves. You can walk down a a supermarket aisle and foods are clearly identified as vegan or not vegan. Um, There's much more choice. If you were vegan 20 or 30 years ago, you were eating crap. You were eating chips and tomato sauce and you you were struggling to find stuff that you you could eat and there weren't many recipe books and, and so on. I think it's much easier and therefore healthier to be a vegan today you just got to watch things like vitamin b12 and get some advice on that i think that vegans will live a long time i think they'll do well you just got to be concerned about something if you're really strict something like b12 but you need to get advice on that yeah (laughs) give me a flashback of when i was in the army i remember one of the team was vegetarian and they instead of getting a ration pack like everyone else they got a tin of peas and like the rq wasn't even joking he's like that's all i got (laughs) yeah yeah it's just punishing you but, you know, the evidence is that vegetarians live longer. Yeah. Um, but there isn't the evidence of vegans one way or the other. But I think it's unlikely they'll be much different from vegetarians unless they're really strict and, you know, nutritionally compromising themselves. And I really, you know, people don't do that to themselves. It's so much easier. And that comes through in, in your books quite loud and clear as well. You talk very much about the Greek diet as well, don't you? Actually, could you explain the Greek paradox? Well, that's right. We think of the, the French paradox, which, which is, you know, the French live longer and they're smoking gitan and eating lots of butter and salt and so on. But, the, the, yeah, in the book I talk about the real paradox being Greek. So the second longest lived people in the world, according to research done at Deakin University in Melbourne, are older Greek Australians who, who are migrants. So they're the first, you know, they, they're off the boat in a sense. So they're older now, but they're living a long time. And 
So what is it about that? And a researcher called Tanya Thodis at Deakin has done this work with Catherine Itziopoulos, who's now at Curtin University in Perth. And you'd think, well, you'd immediately jump to the conclusion it's a Mediterranean diet. So everybody's in love with the Mediterranean diet, and as, as am I. But you've got to be careful of the Mediterranean diet because just think of all the countries around the Mediterranean, from Morocco, Israel, Turkey, through, you know, you go to Italy, people are stuffing their faces with prosciutto, and that's not a healthy and diet. Tiramisu. <laughs> but, so the, the Mediterranean diet that's associated with a longer life is the diet of the Greek islands. It's uh, a lot of vegetables, a lot of color, a lot of difference, a lot of variety between the vegetables, not a lot of red meat, maybe once uh, once uh, a week. Protein coming from things like lentils, chickpeas, and so on. All the carbohydrates being unrefined, complex carbohydrates, and uh, a little bit of wine and fish, obviously, as well. So that's, but that is not the whole story because, in fact, it's about cuisine. So it's how you cook makes a difference. If all you were to do is abandon an ultra-processed diet and have a kind of raw Mediterranean diet, that'd be really good for you. I mean, that, that's just a huge change in your diet. But you can do better than that. And you can do better than that by cooking the food. And the first thing is that on the Greek islands and in Greece as well, and in many Mediterranean countries, they don't cook at a high heat. They cook at a moderate heat. So you don't get the burning of food. And that burnt crust, that caramelization, has pro-aging, speeds up aging. They're called advanced glycation end products. So the moderate feed. But then when you cook extra virgin olive oil, onions, fresh herbs, which are, by the way, grown in their backyard or on an allotment. Remember, these are Melburnians we're talking about here. So they're getting exercise. Things are fresh. And if they go shopping, they shop for freshness. You know, don't go shopping with a Greek nonna because you know, it's a nightmare. And indeed, don't go shopping with a Vietnamese nonna either because, interestingly, the, the Southeast Asian diet, the Vietnamese diet, is not that different from the Mediterranean diet. It tastes different. It looks different. But the, but the overall thing is the same. And in fact, interestingly, for their level of income, Vietnamese in Southeast Asia live longer. Um, their, their life expectancy. Anyway, so freshness, gardening, bit of exercise, cooking at moderate heat. And when you cook, you get this chemistry set of bioactive compounds that you could never buy off the shelf in the pharmacy, which slow down aging. Now, you know, in ancient times, nobody knew anything about this. It just happens. That's the way the Mediterranean diet is. But that's not all. They eat with family and friends. And what I talk about in the book is how the brain runs everything. And the brain controls the body. And if you're under stress, you're lonely, and so on, that sends pro-aging messages to the rest of the body because it speeds up the immune system and your gets your blood pressure up. You know, it's a very unhealthy situation. So they're very focused on eating with family and friends, slow cooking. Um, and, they, and they might have a bit of alcohol, but alcohol is probably irrelevant to the story because alcohol probably can be quite harmful, if in, in, is harmful in excess. But here's the other thing that happens, is that older Greek Australians are still quite devout, it's a sweeping generalisation, in the Greek Orthodox Church. And there are well there are over 100 fast days a year in the Greek Orthodox calendar. But they're not Michael Mosley fasts. They're days of frugality, where you only plant foods, you don't eat 
animal protein. And um, so in other words, they're frugal days rather than fast days. So that's the kind of package that Tanithoris and others think allows these people to live longer. Yeah. And because, I mean, the point you make there as well is like dietary restriction as well, because that's become the gold standard for living longer. Why do you think that is as a component of this whole sort of problem challenge? So it's not dietary restriction as much as calorie restriction, creating a calorie gap. Because when you look at the data from animal research, so I stress this, animal research, and I spent a lot of time on this in my second book, How to Live, So You Want to Live Younger Longer, is if you look at the data on animal research and you look at the metabolic pathways that speed up aging, slow it down, and when we're talking about that, we're talking about your immune system being fired up. When your immune system gets fired up, you get what's called inflammation. Now, we know about inflammation from our skin. You know, if you get a rash or you get a wound and you get redness and it closes over. That inflammation is the first line of defense of your immune system. Now, the side effect of inflammation, crudely, is scarring. It it stiffens up your tissues. It, it It ages your tissues. The same way as you get scarring from a wound, you get scarring on the inside. It also speeds up what's called oxidative stress, which is the stress from oxygen inside your body and and other metabolic pathways. So if you look at those metabolic pathways and you look at healthy lifespan, if you restrict the calories of almost every animal that's been studied, uh, they live longer, healthier. Now, these are not normal experiments. First of all, they're often genetically selected animals. They're in a lab environment, which is sterile, and it doesn't tell you a lot. But Professor Luigi Fontana at the University of Sydney has done a trial in humans. Now, it seems to be the case in humans, too, that when you restrict calories, you do seem to slow down these aging processes. The problem is the human body, probably more than many other animals, the human body is very good at defending itself. So if you change something in yourself, the body reacts and defends against it, even though it might be quite good for you. So if you reduce your calories, the body burns fewer calories. It doesn't know that you're trying to diet or lose weight. <laughs> it's not it, on the same team. <laughs> no, no, that's right. So, it, it, so while you're at rest, it'll burn fewer calories. So the gal- calorie gap narrows. So if you don't have intermittent days, if you don't add to your fasting exercise, the calorie gap will narrow and the benefit will narrow. The other thing he's shown is that you can't eat anything you like on your five days. You've actually got to eat a healthy diet because what he's shown recently is that if you eat anything you like, you might lose weight. But when they study your metabolism and your aging processes, they haven't changed. But if you eat a lot of vegetables, not much red, in other words, a Mediterranean-style diet on your five days on, we're allowed to eat, then you get that metabolic change. So you get weight loss and metabolic change. This stuff is complicated. You know, there, there, it's not that complicated. And if you just pay attention to different aspects of your life, exercise, diet, and what have you, what you're taking in, what supplements may work, what supplements may not work, then you, you can actually make very sensible choices for yourself. And that's one thing that really hit home for me as well. 
we are so complex as an organism. You can't just pull out one piece and go, ah, oh, you know, take this supplement because that'll fix that. It's like you say, it's like using a, a whole selection of a suite of things all in concert together like an orchestra. But what I've tried to do in the book is explain some of this stuff. It's just quite hard to explain. We try and do it in, in language that if you're not scientifically trained, you, you will follow and understand to help you make your own mind up about stuff. So you understand how the body works so that you think, well, if I'm, you know, somebody's flogging you something, will it work now that I understand how the body works? And what I spend quite a lot of time on is a concept called homeostasis, balance. So your body, our bodies are in balance. And so if our blood pressure goes up, we've got a system for bringing it down again. If inflammation goes up in our immune system, the immune system's got a way of bringing it back. For every way you can go in the body, pretty much, the body's got a way of pulling it back. Otherwise, the body would be out of control. And so it is with the aging process as well. So what I liken it to is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So imagine the Leaning Tower of Pisa when it's just been built. It's straight up and down. And... Um, and instead of the leaning tower of Pisa, this is our homeostatic mechanisms in the body. This is all our balance in the body. And um, and it, when it tilts, it's tilting towards aging. And there are all sorts of things that can do that. But uh, So there's all sorts of forces trying to keep it upright. But then we prod it. Air pollution, lack of exercise, crap diet, stress, chronic stress in particular – and all of a sudden, you know, the tower just starts leaning towards aging. Now, it does that so imperceptibly that the body gets used to it. So instead of the body thinking it's normal being straight up and down, the body starts to think it's normal being on a tilt, which is a tilt towards aging. Now, so that becomes the new normal for the body. So all these balance mechanisms are now on a tilt. If you come in and prod it with one of these anti-aging supplements, which in theory should work because they work in animals, and you prod it with an NAD booster or you prod it with resveratrol, you prod it with something else. The body says, bugger you. <laughs> uh, you know, this is abnormal, and it resists it. So it might work for a little while, but then it comes back because it thinks this is, this is normal is being on a tilt. What's happening is that for a lot of these supplements is they've got no idea of the right dose, they probably don't work by themselves. And, and what's likely to happen in the future is that some of these supplements will work, but they might work in tiny doses, working together, and maybe only taking it once a fortnight. Yeah. So the body doesn't get used to it, and you, and you, and you keep on confusing the body. Whereas we think if a little works, more is going to work more better. That's not necessarily the case. So working out how these substances, which actually should slow down aging, will work. And I've got no doubt that in some shape or form, they will work in the future, but it won't be by themselves and it won't be in massive doses in clinics in Germany. It will be tiny, tiny doses in combination and it's going to be very hard to study. In the meantime, we know the big stuff. Yeah, and the big stuff is the stuff that is generally cheaper and it's about building your whole lifestyle and the environment that you live in around. Well, it's, all, it's, it's also about your, psycholo your psychological, your social and your financial state as well. Because as I say, the brain runs everything. And if you're not in a good place psychologically or if you're feeling out of control of your life, 
your brain will tell the rest of the body to get on alert. There's a problem here, it tells the rest of the body. So immune system, get, you know, something's happening here. We don't know what it is, but you're going to have to fire up. Your cardiovascular system, you're, you're going to get ready for action. So blood pressure, get up, pulse, get up, and so on. So your body gets ready for action on a chronic basis if you're chronically under stress. And what's meant for a response to last a couple of hours in a battle with a saber-toothed tiger lasts for years, and instead of protecting your life, shortens your life. So in fact, it's actually who you are in your world and your relationships around you, your work, and so on. That makes a huge difference, and that's been shown by research. You know, there's lots of research to support that. It makes me think of parenting. It's like the long, dark night of just constant sleep deprivation, you know, all sorts of stresses, and you come out of it just haggard at the other end. Well, well you do, but look, almost everybody parents, and you seem to get through it, and we are living longer. So I don't think parenting is necessarily a life-shortening exercise, even though at three in the morning changing a nappy, you think it is. <laughs> Probably more life-shortening is not knowing where your teenage child is when they're supposed to be at a party. Yeah, I mean, on a scale of one to ten, how much more stressful would you say adolescent parenting is than toddler parenting? Um, I, I don't think there are multiples in maths to actually account for that difference. Oh, no, we're staring down the, down the barrel of that right now. So, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about child development? and tennis well, I was actually illustrating this to my daughter-in-law the other, the other day essentially it's a game of stimulus and response and look every parent does this without thinking about it and you, you, you can overthink about it, overthink it but you can get remarkable responses out of very very young babies that you would never imagine. So you're, but, and you're often knackered. You know, you're breastfeeding, you're not sleeping, and you you play with the baby a little bit. I trained in pediatrics. It was an interruptive training when I went to the media, but I trained, and somebody who made a big influence on me, and also a, a lot of the people who trained in my era, was somebody who called himself an infant psychiatrist called Barry Brazelton, and he he developed a way of examining children, of examining newborn babies. So the standard way of examining a newborn baby is you test the hips, they're not dislocating, you listen to the heart in case there's a murmur, and you and you just look at the baby's neurological reflexes, are they symmetrical and so on, and is the tone right, baby's not floppy and so on. So it doesn't take you very long and you get a sense of that. So he said, well, that's the basics. Now you've got to actually look at the psychological state. And he had a way, a formal way of actually interacting with the baby just to see what the baby's responses were. And you know, and even a baby that's only a few days old, you can get a response. And it's like a game of tennis. You throw out something and the baby will give you something back. And you throw something back at the baby. And you know, if it looks right, the baby will come back with something stronger. And then babies get tired. You know, they get bored very quickly. So you've got to change the way you do things. But you can, you can get remarkable interactions that are almost like conversations with very young babies, just by you know shutting out everything else around you, focusing on the baby and having a sense of that bat and ball. So you play tennis, you're waiting on a return. And what some people make a mistake of is just, it's like you know serving training the whole time. All you're doing is serving, 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 and not waiting for the return. You've got to serve, 
wait for the return. Serve, you know, then it's not a serve, it's a return of the court. Wait, see what the response is. And, and if you're patient with that, you just get these remarkable heartwarming responses from the baby. And tired parents, you know, it's easy when you come in as somebody who's not been up at three in the morning and having been up every two or three hours, you know, but, but, so it's not, there's nothing magical about it. It's just that somebody's fresh awake coming in. But you, if you get that, and if you look at parents, they do it all the time. They, they know how to do it. They, they soon learn that if you bombard the child, uh, and it's often a mistake that grandparents make because they've been disconnected for a while. So they come in loud and noisy and everything the whole time, and they, get, they can't understand why the baby retreats. <laughs> Whereas you've got to be soft, wait for it, soft, wait for it, and just let the baby run the show. Yeah, brilliant. I was going to ask, how have you found it different being a grandparent to when you brought up your own kids? Um, well, look, it's the, these, the cliches are true. You can hand them back. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, I, it's it's great to be able to, you know, most of my grandchildren are overseas rather than here. So I only interact with them intermittently rather than constantly, although I do have two grandchildren here. You know, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's a pleasure. It's great to get to know them and um, them to get to know you. But it's just my, my approach has always been don't force yourself on them. You just let them come to you. Yeah. Just like that return in tennis. I really appreciate your time today. I've got so many more questions, but I don't want to take up all your time. I think the the main thing I just want to say is if people haven't listened, I think specifically to your, your recent book, it's brilliant. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been wonderful having that continuation of your work on Coronacast flow through into a really comprehensive sort of mapping of ways to think about how you can build a, a much more healthier lifestyle and, and be very mindful and, and deliberate. And I did love the way a lot of them are quite simple and fundamental and once you set them you've set them like you've set a exercise regime you've you've started cooking in a different way and you you know you're you know interacting and socializing in a, so it's it's all really exciting stuff but the 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 very last part about climate change that that was really quite confronting for me but i think it's really important to to keep in mind that we as a as a community have a lot of benefit of working together and there's so much amazing things we can do but also we've just got to keep our eye on the the important stuff societally as well and so um, so, the, so the positive thing through that it, it, you know you can take it away as a negative message but a lot of the theme uh, one of the key themes in the book is about control control of your life because when you lose control of your life that's when chronic stress arises and you, your aging speeds up and one of the ways, and just alluding to what you just said there, is is about community. Is that as individuals, we can make little bits of differences. Yeah, we can recycle. We can watch how much we consume and so on. But in many ways, it's how we respond as communities and, and working together and, you know, and taking part in civil society. That's the way the politicians can't get away with it. They are going to have to be held to account. And so in rural Australia, you've got land care organisations, which are community-based, fixing up that. You've got farmers 
who don't like the policies of the national party because they know they've got a conservative environment and climate change doesn't work for them. So the politicians might be off on one thing, but they've got, they get slowly drawn back by the community. And we've got to work together. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have felt a, a surge of optimism around, yeah, we can we can do this. We can definitely we can. get back on a on an even keel and, and push it the other way, potentially. It's been wonderful chatting with you today. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you are as inspired to get stuck into slow cooking fresh herbs and vegetables in extra virgin olive oil, sat around a table with friends and family as much as I am. On the subject of friends, if you'd like yours to still be around to hang out with you in 40 years time or so, maybe share this episode with them. Also, if you could click some of the stars in the rating section of the Dad Mindset Show, that would be amazing. If you'd like to dive deeper into Dr. Norman's research, you can find links to his books in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. I highly recommend listening to the audio versions as he's got a pretty awesome accent. Well, that's all from me for now. Hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. Thank goodness coffee is still on the menu. <laughs>